Let's pray together. Shatter the silence, mighty God, with your glad and glorious greetings. Banish all our fears and give us faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. If there is anything said this morning that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said this morning that is according to your will, let it be heard, as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe, and believing, obey. Amen. So we're beginning a new sermon series today. Lord's Prayer was long. Uh, maybe, maybe you journeyed all the way through with us. Uh, but we are, we are now beginning a series called A Place in This World. And throughout this series, we're going to be considering, looking at uh, different stories and characters in the Bible that have been left out, that didn't have a place in the world. And through those stories, we're going to find ourselves there in the Bible. Uh, because these stories, these characters, they reflect some part of us and how maybe we haven't had or felt like we've had a place in this world. Speaking of people that maybe don't feel like they have a place in the world, over the last week, so many people, like my 14-year-old daughter Lily, entered the halls of high school for the very first time. If there's ever a, a time in your life where you wonder if you have a place in this world, it's entering the halls of high school, I think, as a freshman. And my heart was with them as they did this because between the 8th and the ninth grades, for me, I thought I had high school all figured out. I knew how to navigate my way to the top of the teenage food chain. Become a linebacker. That's how I'd do it. Obviously. And if not a linebacker, a very strong safety. But that summer when I turned up for my mandatory football physical, the doctor looked at me and he contorted his face at my mother. And then he looked at my chart, presumably at my weight, a substantial and robust 82 pounds. And he frowned purposefully. Let's try soccer, he chirped. And soccer we tried. <laughs> and those first two weeks of preseason soccer, they were a rude awakening for me. Never in my life had I participated in so much running and never in my life had I appreciated the elusiveness of a proper soccer touch. I slogged through it all, though, I'll have you know. Not because I loved soccer, but because I was terrified of entering my first days of high school without a previously identified social group. Sadly, though, as the preseason came to a close, it was eminently clear that I was not among the best soccer players in the freshman class. In fact, I was among the worst and did not even have what it took to play junior varsity. But don't you fret and don't you frown. There were no cuts in that small town. 
Instead, I was deployed to a squad that they called JVB. <laughs> Let me tell you about JVB. JV practiced, JVB practiced on the worst field that the school had. In fact, it was the corner of a field. On game days, JVB shagged warm-up balls for the junior varsity. They missed and we chased the ball. We had plenty of energy to do that because JVB didn't have games scheduled like a normal team. Essentially then, JVB afflicted me with everything I had hoped to avoid by joining the team in the first place. We were the bottom feeders. We were the dregs. We were the afterthoughts. And who wants to be an afterthought? Nobody. That's who. Afterthoughts do not have a place in the world. Younger people don't want to be an afterthought to those making decisions. Older people don't want to be an afterthought to those out having fun and bouncing on bouncy houses. Parents of every age don't want to be an afterthought to kids who are on the run. Children of every age don't want to be an afterthought to parents who are busy with life. It's a fear for the wavering spouse, the sick friend, the anxious employee, and yes, the scrawny freshman with no chance at Friday night lights. And yet the afterthought treatment gets imposed on all of us. And who wants to be an afterthought? Nobody. That's who. In the middle of the 16th century, and thus the tail end of the Renaissance, Peter Bruegel, I don't know if I'm getting that name right, he painted something called the Procession to Calvary, and I believe that's on the front of your bulletin. In the foreground of that painting, there's a cluster of women, including Mary, and they hang their sad faces. But most are indifferent to anything other than their own circumstances. Thieves scamper away with bags on their shoulders. Men throw fists at one another. Drums are beaten, loads are carried, and countless soldiers in red coats ride horses that gallop around in the chaos. And there in the middle of them all, almost invisible, do you see it? Almost impossible to focus on with everything else that's going on. Do you see it? Christ carries the cross. Even Christ, even in this moment, the procession to Calvary is little more than an afterthought. Have things changed? Or are we all still in that painting? Is Christ and his cross just something else amidst all the busyness? Is he an afterthought? It's obvious, even for the art amateur like myself, to appreciate 
the genius of the artist's condemnation. That is, for a species fixed on being seen and remembered, it is absurd that our pattern of human life is to let the most important things, even the most important thing in all of human history, so commonly escape our attention. But at least for me, the painting does not only offer up that condemnation, as right as it might be. It also draws out, at least for me, it draws out compassion. I'm sad for him. Aren't you? Look at him there. And as odd as it may seem, my immediate concern is not even the cross that I'm sad for him. I'm sad about how indifferent they are. How nobody notices. Because I've been an afterthought too. We've, we've all been an afterthought. We've all been carrying a cross in the midst of a busy crowd. And nobody's noticed. And who wants to be an afterthought? Nobody. That's who. But at least Jesus comes by it honestly. Remember, Jesus comes from the line of David. And while David is a prominent figure in the scriptures, most of us know him readily and by name and his stories by heart, certainly David is no afterthought by any imagination. In any estimation, the same cannot be said of his brothers, David's brothers, these great uncles of Jesus. These great uncles of Jesus are so obscure, in fact, that I wonder if you can name even one of them. And I just had those names read a few moments ago. They're printed in your bulletins, in fact. Can you name even one? They're obscure. They're afterthoughts. Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema. They're introduced to us in today's text as those brothers that Samuel passes by before anointing David as the next king of Israel. Now the typical first reading of this passage fixes our attention on the way that David is chosen. Even though he's the youngest and the smallest, he's chosen. It's an affirmation of God's goodness to those that, that might least expect it. With David, everyone's biblical hero, right there in the center of it all. And undeniably, there is something good and important to be learned from that read of the story. But what fascinates me today is the connection that we find between this story and the one in the next chapter. Another famous retelling of David's heroics. In that passage, David slays Goliath. Before he does, though, guess who makes an appearance? Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema. The same three brothers that were passed by in chapter 16 are standing by gawking as David wields the sling in chapter 17, which is curious because, as Joel Baden writes, not only did we already know that David was the youngest, we already knew the names and birth orders of those three eldest brothers. In fact, we know them relatively well since it was 
precisely these three whom Samuel rejected in the previous story. In the first story, they are explicitly rejected by Samuel. In the second, they are among those who stand by while Goliath challenges the Israelites in a fight. So the only thing we know, the only thing we are permitted to know about these three brothers is that they are stepping stones for David in the two stories that pull him into the limelight. They're afterthoughts. And this is how one becomes an afterthought. To have an entire existence flattened into a single narrative of someone else's choosing for someone else's sake. That's how you become an afterthought. Chimamanda Adichie, a Nigerian author, explains it far better than I could. She says, I grew up under repressive military governments that devalued education so that sometimes my parents were not paid their salaries. And so as a child, I saw jam disappear from the breakfast table, and then margarine disappeared, then bread became too expensive, then milk became rationed, and most of all, a kind of normalized political fear invaded our lives. She says, all of these stories make me who I am, but to insist on only the negative stories is to flatten my experience and to overlook the many other stories that shaped me, that formed me. The single story creates stereotypes, and the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. So just as this single story of these three brothers passed over for David's sake reduces them to caricatures, we tell single stories and have them told about us, right? And that's how we become afterthoughts. The single story of the poor being poor, and that's all they are, flattened into that single narrative as if that's all there is to them, that they don't have anything else dynamic and worth appreciating, worth knowing about and loving. They become an afterthought. The single story of being old and nothing else, the single story of your race, your ethnicity, the single story that comes with being a person with a disability or an illness, as if being sick. That's all there is to you now. That's how you become an afterthought. Just someone to visit or get, have a call made to every now and then. The single story of having an ideological position. Ah, he's a Republican. No, 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 no. That's all he is. Ah, he's a Democrat. No, that's all he is. And that's how we flatten one another. That's how we flatten one another. That's how we create a stereotype. And that's how we make people afterthoughts. But there's so much more to who we are than what we've been flattened into with that single story. There's so much more to each and every one of us, to each and every one of you, than a single story as Adichie closed, she said, when we reject the single story, 
when we realize that there's never a single story about any place or any person, we regain a kind of paradise. I would say we regain community. We maybe get a glimpse of what it really means to be church when we reject that single story and we appreciate the unboundedness of the people we share life with. That's how it was for the JVB soccer team, my freshman year at least. No, not a single one of us rose up to a highly skilled level of playing soccer. But we became friends. We were more than just terrible soccer players. We celebrated when somehow accidentally one of us managed to knock a goal in. We applauded when one of us got the big call up to ride the bench on JVA even if we were masking our jealousy. Yes, we were high school boys with high hopes of climbing the social ladder. And by the end of the season, we were sharing an occasional victory hug. We learned to laugh off most of our our mistakes and we even had a team cheer to show our pride. Who are we? JVB. (laughs) Come on, try it with it. Who are we? (laughs) That's who we are. (laughs) Kirk in the Hills, I don't care how many bells are in that tower. You're just JVB. (laughs) But there's more to you than that. Your story isn't flat. We We were incompetent at freshman soccer, and each of us can think of a compelling example of how we are incompetent at being a human being. We've made mistakes, we've held back forgiveness, we complain, we make foolish criticisms, harsh rebuttals, damaging decisions, we do these things. We've been too busy with work and the kids and trying to stay healthy, attempting to be heard and living with being sad. And some of us, well, the reality is we haven't tried very hard at very much. But as we share life together, And that love born from that life together is extended to ones that will never grace the doorstep of our church. We affirm that not one of those single stories has the power to flatten us into anyone's afterthought. Because we're friends. And because we're friends, we can regain some kind of paradise. It's a paradise that we have the pleasure of glimpsing in the here and now. As children flourish, as meals are shared, as folks get lifted up, as laughs are multiplied, as respect comes easy, and it is a paradise that we can look forward to in glory. Because try as we might, Jesus will not allow his narrative to be flattened either. His is not a single story about a cross carrying it or dying on it. If it was, we like the artists would be indifferent to it. But it isn't just about carrying a cross and it isn't just about dying on it is it no in christ we worship we follow the one who expanded the story to the good news of an empty tomb 
And he elevated that story so that when it came to the promise of eternal life, none of his beloved would ever be an afterthought. And all God's people said, Amen.